Please turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. That'll be our sermon text for this morning, Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. Before we read that together, let's pray one more time. Our Father, we do uh, thank you for uh, the greatness of your love that casts out all fear. And we pray that even as we look at your word this morning, we would get a glimpse of that love. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds, uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear of the greatness of your love found in your Son, Jesus. Uh, Speak to us through your word this morning by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." Well, there are lots of reasons that you might be here this morning, uh, some good, some bad, I guess. Uh, maybe, you're, maybe you're here because your parents dragged you, and you didn't have a choice. Uh, maybe you're here because someone guilted you into coming. But I hope you're here because you value spiritual things, and you realize that there is this dimension to your life that goes beyond the physical, beyond the, the social, beyond the economic There are spiritual realities that you can't see or touch or explain. And you know, or at least hope, that what we do here will somehow give you a deeper understanding of and appreciation for and connection with those spiritual realities. You know, even some secular people are saying there are good reasons uh, to be religious nowadays. It's interesting. Scientific journals uh, over the past few decades have published studies about the the benefits of religious engagement. Um, According to these studies, religious people tend to be healthier, happier, have higher self-esteem, and greater resources to deal with failure. Now, I don't know that that's always true. In fact, uh, that's not always true. Uh, in fact, sometimes people, uh, re- even religious people, are riddled with fear, even fear and uncertainty about their religion. And I wonder if that is you this morning. I wonder if when you think about God, the feeling you get is not joy, but anxiety. I wonder if when you think about the future and when you think about death, you are crippled with apprehension and worry. 
I wonder if thinking about sin tends to bring only a sense of failure and hopelessness. It's that religious, uh, quote, religious anxiety and fear and apprehension that our text speaks into this morning. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I, I just don't believe in God, so I don't have to worry about those kinds of fears. I would challenge that. Uh, I, I think most of us at some point have to come to face, uh, face-to-face with deep existential fear. I would say that, that fear and uncertainty and anxiety are rooted in the brokenness of our relationship with God. Uh, that, that the reason we are so afraid is fundamentally religious in nature. And here's what we're going to see this morning, that Christ came to give us uh, heart and hope and help. That is, uh, that Christ became our high priest, and therefore, uh, we can take heart, find hope, and seek help where it may be found. Uh, And that's our outline for this morning. Christ became our high priest, uh, therefore, take heart, find hope, and seek help where it may be found. So first, Christ became our high priest. Uh, the, the language of priests is a bit muddled today. Uh, if we think of needing a priest, uh, we probably put that in the same category as a, a counselor. Uh, this past week, Deborah and I finished season uh, 11 of Cheers for like the third or fourth time. Um, <laughs> And multiple times over that series, Sam Malone, the main character, who is otherwise not a religious man in any way, uh, he goes to a priest for advice or to get something off of his chest. Uh, But priests in the Bible, and particularly priests in the Old Testament, are not therapists. Uh, They are mediators. Uh, Much like today, if you're having a conflict at work and and they brought in a mediator to bring reconciliation... Uh, That was the role of a priest, except that the two parties needing reconciliation are God and his people. And God himself provided the priests to effect that reconciliation. The cause of our underlying uh, fear and worry and anxiety often is a real conflict. And the guilt and the shame and the fear that comes with it, what we need is reconciliation to our Father. Now, things were not always this way. Uh, God created humanity to live with him, to dwell with him, to relate to him, happy and holy forever, uh, world without end. In the beginning, there was a world of perfect harmony uh, with a life-giving relationship between God and man. But humanity turned their back on God and sought to have life apart from him, and guilt and shame and death, death and slavery was the result. And however that might manifest itself, in our lives, whether generalized anxiety or, or specific phobias or, or any number of addictive behaviors or preoccupation with germs and disease and death, often the underlying cause, the root cause, is the same. The relationship that should have been a source of security and peace and comfort and hope and joy has become a source of uncertainty and guilt and shame and fear and sadness. Hence our need for a priest, for a mediator, for a reconciler, one who can stand in the gap and restore what has been broken. Of course, that's not so simple. Uh, If you get in an argument with a friend, uh, you might take a third friend along with you to help you make things right. But how do you do that with God? 
Job, you know, one of the few people in Scripture who demanded God hear his case, said this, uh, God is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come together in trial. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. He's saying, even if I wanted to be reconciled to God, who could stand between us? Well, our text this morning tells us who. Uh, More than that, it tells us how he was qualified to become for us a merciful and faithful high priest. There are three things that we see in our text that qualify Jesus to be our high priest. Uh, He became a man. He was tempted as a man. And he suffered as a man. Uh, First, he became a man. Uh, the, The only way... One might lay his hand on both God and man, as Job put it, is by being both God and man. Hebrews has already emphasized the divinity of Jesus. You may remember the world was created through him. He is the exact imprint of the Father. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the God whom God anointed and whose throne is forever and ever. He laid the foundations of the earth and of his years there is no end. But, Hebrews tells us, this God, while remaining God, also became man. Last week we saw that he became for a little while lower than the angels, which, while more than simply a reference to to his humanity, certainly includes it. And our text this morning repeats this fact multiple times and in multiple ways. So, look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Now that that one source could be referring to the Father, God, uh, but more likely it's actually referring to Abraham. Verse 15 goes on to say that Jesus helps the sons of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers. And, And later on in Hebrews, Hebrews 11 verse 12, referring to Abraham, we're told, Therefore from one man... We're born descendants as many as the stars of heaven. See, there's this emphasis in Hebrews on, on the Abrahamic peoples with the, uh, that, and that he is the source of God's people with the understanding, as Paul puts it in Galatians 3.7, that ultimately it is those of faith who are the children of Abraham. And so Jesus became a man, but through the line of Abraham. Well, what, does that, what does that mean? It means verse 14 Uh, Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Uh, Note the phrase, partook of the same things, right? The the implication is that Jesus was around prior to partaking of flesh and blood. Uh, More properly, God the Son existed before the incarnation, right? He was God, but then he took on flesh and blood, just like you and I. Verse 17 adds that he was made like his brothers in every respect, The Son of God, who dwelt in heaven from all eternity, took on humanity. He was made like us in every way. And Hebrews will add only one exception to that in chapter 4, yet without sin. It's possible to think of the incarnation as being like uh, the the way parents sometimes interact with their kids, right? That the child wants to play dress up and the parent says, okay, fine, I'm going to feel stupid about it. I hope nobody notices, nobody's watching, but I'll go ahead and and put on this unicorn horn to amuse you or something like that. Not that that ever happened in our house. It's possible to think of the incarnation as God putting on human skin, not really liking it, but being a little embarrassed by it, but you know, he's noble after all. Uh, But that would be wrong. Uh, Verse 11 says that 
That, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not embarrassed that he became like you and I. He's not saying, Ick, I can't wait to get rid of this human suit, which he never will, by the way. No, Jesus embraced humanity in the incarnation. Jesus became man. And not only that, he also came to be tempted as a man. Uh, it's mentioned explicitly in verse 18, Jesus suffered when tempted. Uh, but it's implied in verse 17 when Hebrews says, he was made like his brothers in every respect. That includes our being tempted. Uh, Hebrews will spell this out explicitly in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus became a man, and he, became, he came to be tempted as a man, tempted like you are, tempted like I am. And what's more, he came to suffer as a man. Verse 14 says Jesus took on flesh and blood in order to die. Verse 18 says he suffered when he tempted. Verse 17 mentions making propitiation, which uh, while the Old Testament priests offered animal sacrifices, uh, Jesus, the book of Hebrews will go on to explain, offered the sacrifice of himself by suffering and dying in our place. And you see, it's this becoming like us, becoming a man who was tempted and suffered as we are, that qualified Jesus to be our high priest. And Jesus had to become like us so that he could represent us. Verse 17 says this, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And that, by the way, explains what may seem like an odd phrase in verse 10. Uh, back at the beginning of the passage, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, that is God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews uh, teaches that Jesus was made perfect. Now, our, our knee-jerk reaction to that is to say, wait a minute, that, how is that possible? Jesus was already perfect, right? How could he be made perfect? Uh, but perfect here does not mean moral perfection. Uh, that's not what the writer is talking about. Uh, in that sense, yes, Jesus is already perfect, was always perfect. Uh, but the word perfect here can mean something like maturity. It's one way uh, the word perfect is used in Scripture. As a human being who is born a baby, right, Jesus, of course, grew in maturity and therefore in perfection. He grew up into what it means to be a human being. The word can also imply qualification uh, Jesus was perfected in the sense of qualified for his priestly work. He was not fully qualified for that work as God the Son in heaven. Uh, no, he had to become like us, right? In order to be our high priest, he had to become like us and even suffer like us. And his suffering qualified him to become our great high priest. And so he was made perfect, that is perfectly fit for this role through suffering. Now, <coughs> you might wonder, okay, that's great. Uh, what difference does all of this make? I mean, who, who cares about kind of the, the details of the incarnation? Does it really matter that Jesus became a man to be tempted and to suffer and to die? Uh, is this just some obscure theological point of debate about 
about who Jesus is? Well, uh, hopefully you're not asking that question, but uh, if you are, let me say uh, no. Um, This is incredibly important to the Christian life. And let me give you three therefores, uh, three implications of the incarnation. Uh, Christ became our high priest, therefore take heart. Many people, Christian and non, live day to day doubting that God is for them. And when we think about God, we we don't delight in him. We're afraid of him. Uh, We have a keen sense of our sin, uh, even if we deny it. And so we live in fear of judgment filled with shame and guilt. We try to avoid thinking about God as much as possible, hoping he'll just go away. Let me say, uh, take note here that you might take heart. Uh, Take note of the goal of Jesus' incarnation and suffering. Verse 11 calls it sanctification. Uh, Sanctification is just a, a fancy word for being made holy. And being made holy here means not uh, what it sometimes means in, in Scripture and in theology, not internal moral transformation, uh, but being set apart, being set apart for the presence of God, being, again, qualified for holy things. Uh, especially in the Old Testament, the, the word uh, sanctify or to be made holy meant to be qualified to be in the presence of God. And Christ's goal of becoming man was that man might come before God. Uh, Christ qualifies us for the presence of the Father. He sanctifies us. He makes us holy, fit for God's presence. How does he do that? Well, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus' sacrifice of himself makes us holy. It makes us fit for the Father's presence. And so we realize that, that we ought to connect verse 11 about sanctification With verse 17, that Jesus was made like us in every respect to make propitiation for our sins. Uh, That is, by the sacrifice of Christ, the stain of our sin is removed. He makes propitiation so that we are fit for the presence of the Father. And the result for us is confidence. Uh, Hebrews 4 uh, draws this out. Uh, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Uh, That is to bring that sacrifice into the Father's presence. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, because of the work of our great high priest, we can have confidence. We can take heart that we are welcomed by the Father. You see, your relationship to God is not determined by, by how much theology you know or, or how kind you've been this week or how many sins you've conquered in your lifetime or how often you read your Bible or say your prayers. Our righteousness, however great it may be, is always tainted with sin. Whatever your good deeds uh, you might bring to the Father, if you're honest, we always have to acknowledge that what we have to offer is still broken, still rebellious. Hence, Jesus, right? He comes to sanctify us by his propitiatory sacrifice. That is, he comes to set us apart for God's presence by cleansing us with his blood. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you have no reason to doubt or fear or be anxious when it comes to the Father's love for you. You can draw near, and the Father will welcome you with open arms because of Jesus, our great high priest.
Christ became our high priest, therefore take heart and find hope. Part of our, our general anxiety uh, about God and the unknown is the fear of death. Uh, Hebrews teaches that the fear of death keeps us subject to lifelong slavery, uh, which is a pretty insightful statement, right? That the point is that when the fear of death controls us, uh, we will do anything to keep ourselves healthy and alive. Now, on the one hand, you have our constant concern for health in our culture, our excessive fear of germs, the, the millions of dollars that we spend on fitness every year in our country. On the other hand, you have people trying to, to live up every moment because they know that at any moment could be the last moment of their lives. And then you have people who would rather just not think about the whole thing at all, and so they give themselves over to the things of this life in the hope of forgetting that this life will not last forever. But then those moments come, right, where, where thinking about death becomes inevitable. Uh, we barely escape from an accident that, that should have been the end. And we begin to realize that we are mortal. Or we lose a loved one and are suddenly confronted with the fact that we too will face death one day. The world becomes consumed with the latest pandemic. And all the news is when it will come to us and how we can avoid falling prey. Couple that with a sense of, of what death really is, not a natural part of life, but a judicial punishment for sin. Uh, couple that with uh, what Hebrews will say later in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Couple that with simply the fear of the unknown and whatever comes next, and people can become consumed with the fear of death. How do we find hope in the face of death? Verses 14 and 15 tell us. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, Jesus came. He, he took on flesh and blood that he might die. And in dying, he destroyed the devil. Now, what does that mean? Uh, the devil, according to Scripture, is the accuser. That is, he's like the prosecuting attorney in heaven. He's the one who says to the Father, throw that one into hell. They're not worthy of your presence. This is why the devil is said to have the power of death, because uh, judicial death comes through sin and condemnation. The one who can accuse us, therefore, has the power to kill us. But Jesus came to undercut the devil's accusing work. By dying in our place, our penalty has been paid, and death has no rightful claim on us. This is seen in Jesus when he himself rose from the dead because death had no right to keep its hold on him, because he had satisfied the penalty for our sin, though he himself was righteous in every way. Which, of course, gives us hope. Right? That, that as he rose, though we die, yet we'll, will we live. Uh, Jesus said this in John 11. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. This is why Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15 that death has lost its sting. He says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, do, do you fear death? Do you fear death? Uh, that, that makes sense on the one hand, right? Death is unnatural. It's not what God intended. But do you know that for those who are in Christ, death 
is no different than sleep. That though we lay down in death, we will rise up in the resurrection. Because death has no right to keep its hold on us. Death has lost its sting, as Paul puts it. Jesus has removed its sting by taking sin on the cross so that the devil's accusations would fall on deaf ears at the Father's throne of grace. Christ became our great high priest. Therefore, take heart in your relationship to the Father. Find hope in the face of death. And finally, seek help where it may be found. The Christian life is hard. Life is hard. I'm 41 years old, and uh, 23 of those, uh, I have been a Christian, and I still struggle every day with sin and temptation. Paul's estimation of himself, as you read through his letters, if you read through them chronologically, his estimation of himself throughout his life seems to get worse. It's later in his life that he calls himself the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. Now, Paul didn't become worse, mind you. But he saw more and more of his sin as time went on. I don't know about you, but, but sometimes it feels like I'm becoming worse. And of course, some days are worse than others. But when we are tempted, especially when we fall, it can lead not only to guilt and shame, but also hopelessness. Hopelessness that, that anything is ever going to change. Hopelessness that anything is ever going to get better. Though Christ was and is without sin, Hebrews wants to emphasize that he knows what you are going through. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to fight against temptation. We have a saying about not judging someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Uh, Well, that is exactly what Jesus did. He came to walk a mile in our shoes, but he's still not judging us. In fact, he's here to help, verse 18 says. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, I don't know your struggles. I I don't know your temptations. I don't know your sins. I don't know your failures. But I do know this, that Jesus is able and willing and ready to help. Not only has he removed the stain of your sin by the sacrifice of himself, But he is able to put his own spirit inside of you to transform you and renew you after his image. Go to him. Pray to him. Seek him out in his word. Call out to him in desperation. He is able to help in your time of need. We can become so consumed with fears, with anxieties, with worries, not only about things in the world, but even about spiritual things. He became like us that we might come before the Father. Jesus died for us that we might be free from the fear of death. Jesus was tempted when he suffered that he might be able to help those who are tempted like you and me. Take heart in your relationship to the Father. Find hope in the face of death and seek help where it may be found in the arms of Jesus, your great high priest. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the greatness of our Savior, the one who was God, who created the world and yet took on human flesh, became man, that he might be tempted as we are, that he might sympathize with us in our temptation, that he might suffer and die in our place, 
removing the devil's accusing power and freeing us from bondage to death. Father, give us, give us hope in those things. Strengthen us to look to Jesus, to trust in him, and to walk by faith day by day, relying upon his power made perfect in our weakness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.